This week, we welcome to the show two renowned designers and leather makers who are backing a global campaign designed to share the truth about real leather, how it is made, and crucially, the role it can and indeed must play in a truly sustainable economy. Leather Truthfully is that new campaign that sets out the facts and seeks to explode some of the myths or misunderstandings about leather making. And Anja Heinmarch and Bill Amberg are going to be here to explain why they are on board for this particular journey. Plus, a little later in the programme, we'll meet the founder of a Dutch brand making what might just be the very best shirts in the world in India. We're challenging some preconceptions and setting the record straight this week on The Entrepreneurs with me, Tom Edwards. We start with Anya Heinmarch and Bill Amberg. Anya is the founder, CEO and creative director of her eponymous brand that makes fashion accessories. Bill was born in Northampton, which our British listeners will know, some of our international audience might not, as the historic centre of shoemaking here in England. Growing up there with a love of craft and, of course, leather, and with an architect mother, it's perhaps no surprise that Bill's studio is now the undisputed authority on architectural leatherwork, offering the full suite of services relating to integrating leather into interiors. With those backgrounds... Could there be two better spokespeople for Leather Truthfully? This campaign is designed by Leather Naturally, the not-for-profit that represents the industry and promotes the use of globally manufactured sustainable leather. It's a huge pleasure to welcome you, Anya and Bill, to the show. You guys are both celebrated practitioners, designers, users of leather in the work that you do. Can you just give us, first of all, a bit of background? What's the scale of the problem, the misperception, if you like, in terms of public attitudes around leather and leather making that needs to be addressed by a campaign? We'll talk about the details of the campaign in a second, but what's the nature of the misunderstanding? Um, And I'll put that to you, first of all, that needs to be addressed. Well, I think that, as ever, it's not, I think, I mean, there's just miseducation, really. I think people feel leather is, is very bad for the environment and often sort of push towards, for example, vegan leather. And in fact, when you dig even just a tiny bit under the surface, vegan leather is, is just plastic. And leather is nuanced in the sense that, you know, good leather from a regenerative farm that's tanned properly and as a byproduct of the meat industry is actually good for the environment, whereas bad leather that is from a sort of, you know, a bad farm, a sort of industrially farmed animal that's tanned badly and, you know, polluting substances is actually very bad for the environment. So it's not as simple as leather is bad. In fact, I mean, I can work with anything, any materials at all, but actually when we dig down, leather is a really brilliant, brilliant material, natural material. So we really need to understand and communicate properly about leather rather than there's an awful lot of misinformation that's spread around. Well, yeah. And Bill, let let me bring you in here then. So tell us about the new campaign that you and Anya are involved in. It's looking to address that lack of information or the misinformation that's out there. How's it going to work exactly? A report was written last year by Filk, which is a German organization. And they studied the 15 different types of vegan leather available on the market. And the data that they returned with was pretty shocking about the level of plastics and PVCs used in so-called vegan leathers. And I think that bit of data, that sort of factual analysis was the first thing that really prompted action from the leather industry, because up until then, I think it had been generally accepted within the industry of leather's benefits and its position as a byproduct. But this report from a, a, a neutral organization was the first thing that gave everybody the data and the tools to 
start the conversation properly. And I think the leather naturally organization has picked up on that in terms of forming a fundamental shift in the perception of the material. And that's what's crucial. I think, I mean, it's very sad that when I get students from the RCA and UAL coming to see me, their opening line is, well, we can't use leather because it's not sustainable. Well, it's simply not true. Well, yeah. And just on that, do you think that there is, or to a degree, both of you, that the luxury sector or fashion or these areas, are they easy targets when it comes to this conversation, scrutiny about sustainability, which we all understand is important, it's critical. And actually, no good business isn't thinking about being more sustainable in the way that it operates. Do you think that to an extent, maybe this is a sector that gets a bit, a bit of an unfair ride? Anya, do you, would you go along with that? Well, I think fashion generally is very polluting. So, you know, I think it's right that it's under the spotlight. And I mean, I think all of us in every industry are looking at, at everything we're doing and it's so important. So I don't think it's targeted particularly unfairly. I think, if anything, actually, I would say it's quite an exciting opportunity to use the platform, particularly of fashion, which is very sort of communicative and, and can really change people's behaviour quite significantly to communicate effectively. And I, th- I think the issue here really is just about misinformation. And it's so easy often for organisations and you know, sort of jump on the bandwagon of so sort of quick, sort of jingoistic kind of mantras, and, and they're not right. And when you really sort of dig down, and I had I'd done big projects on, on leather, actually, really actually challenging it myself, simply moving away from it. And actually, when you dig down and see what cattle do for, for the soil on a healthy, good farm, it's an incredibly important role that they play. And so it, it's really important that we communicate. And the way that when you buy food, you know, you see the ingredients, you know, you know where it's come from. And I think actually what we need is more transparency. So you know whether you're buying good leather or bad leather. So I think there's a real opportunity more than feeling targeted. And that's a really critical point, I think, about some of the language around this, the presentation, because obviously there's always allegations of greenwashing, there's scepticism in some quarters, isn't there, that maybe the deeds don't match up to the rhetoric. It strikes me, though, that this campaign is different. Bill, is one of the reasons why that's the case because it is so clear that it's explicitly long-term in character. It's, of course, launching and it wants to make an impact with a bit of fanfare, but it's very committed to a longer-term change. That must be very important, right? Well, I think it's important. The most important thing about the longer term change is it goes back to the durability of the material itself. And that touches on a, a much broader subject about, you know, agriculture, the future of agriculture, how things are grown, how meat is produced, why it's produced at all. And in terms of the longevity of that, that, that obviously is a long term view if people are going to start changing the ways agriculture works in looking at a more regenerative agricultural basis for the UK and the world and leather itself coming out of that is an extraordinary durable material. I mean, one of the reasons I got into it in the first place is you find an old piece of leather goods in somebody's attic or you, you see something that your grandparents had and it's a beautiful, beautiful object that's still working and still strong and still practical. And that's one of the key elements about leather. It's a very, very durable material. And I think as people understand more and more the nature and the importance of the circular economy and what that means and how the whole idea of, of what a product is, and you're more of a, it's more stewardship rather than ownership, that you can actually hand on something beautiful to your friends and relatives and it'll stay in the system for a long time. That's the real value of the material. Yeah, I really love that. Anya, did you have an experience like that as well? Do you sort of remember when you first came to 
I don't know, understand, love the material? Was it a specific item, an old sort of valise or something? Was there a moment where you were like, wow, this is really incredible? Yes. I mean, I remember seeing a Roman sandal and just being amazed that that was, you know, that was still around. So I think just the longevity is fascinating. But also the sort of natural beauty, you know, the fact that it's every skin is different. The fact that, you know, the different ways of, of working with it. I mean, it's, it's just a very interesting, I mean, it's, you know, it's a, a natural material. It's incredibly strong. It's flexible. So it's very interesting when you sort of dig down. I think the thing is, it's just become so industrially farmed and so badly processed and i think just cows generally have got a sort of very bad sort of name and the whole environmental argument but it's so important as ever these things are much more complicated and it's really important i think the case is made for good leather as being a really a good thing for the environment actually responsibly farmed and responsibly processed so i really started a couple of projects thinking I'm moving away from leather i don't need to work with leather and actually really understanding later that that's actually that's a mistake it's misguided what strikes me as really remarkable, you guys are talking about responsible farming, regenerative agriculture. These are big ideas. They're complex. How is it that the real progressive moves, the innovation in this space is being driven by activists, makers in the space, people like yourselves? Are, are you OK with that? It's good that the commercial world takes a lead. But do you sometimes feel maybe that there are other, what do you call them, stakeholders, governments, for example, who need to be more doing more to support your industries to better set best practice? I mean, are you comfortable, Bill, that you're becoming one of the people that advocates for best practice? Should you be doing that? You seem to wear it lightly, but is that right? I think anybody involved, anybody who's deeply passionate about their work starts to look at the broader subject and you start to look holistically at every aspect of it. Anya and I both started out at the same time. We're both at the same stage in our business. And it sort of stands to reason that you start to look at a broader subject and that leads you down all sorts of different avenues, which I find fascinating. I'm fascinated by the circular economy. You know, recently I did a talk on a panel about responsible designing. So actually designing something to be repaired so that you can actually repair something in the future. You're not designing something that is literally thrown away, regardless of the material it's made from. And all of these subjects are complex and interesting. And I think it is part of our responsibility as figures in our industry to raise the bar of thinking generally. And if, and if that means that we have to push around a little bit in terms of what governmental bodies are doing or stakeholders around the industry, I think that's really important. You know, manufacturing in the UK on any level is vital for our future. And I think therefore. Think about responsible manufacturing. Think about, you know, the product life. And those are important subjects. Anya, I wanted to ask you a little bit about some, I guess, changes maybe structurally in terms of emphasis, in terms of your own business. It, it, it strikes me you're a bit maybe less tied to some of the, you know, traditional seasonality of fashion, some of these very set practices in terms of the way people think about, yeah, manufacturing process and how they're then going to present their ideas to the world. It strikes me that was happening anyway. I guess maybe some of those processes were accelerated by the pandemic as well. Do you enjoy the fact that you have, I don't know, changed your approaches, you've diversified, maybe challenged the ways some of the received wisdom for the industry? Do you like that kind of process? I do. I realise as I get a bit older that fashion with purpose is my sort of happy place in a way I think fashion just per se 
whilst I don't diss it. And I think some lovely aspects and so many, you know, it's an amazing employer and incredible contributor to the economy and, you know, confidence boost for, for so many. And it's such a lovely subject and it's a subject of ours in many ways. But I actually like fashion with purpose. And so we spent a lot of time thinking about trying to avoid landfill and, and repurposing projects. But the projects we've done, I am not a plastic bag and I am a plastic bag, which are really on that subject and universal bag, although it was awful. But actually more recently, someone said to me actually that, you know, of course, you know, we're all trying to save things from waste and landfill, but actually, of course, in nature, there is no waste. And, and it seems so obvious and profound, but actually, you know, if an apple drops from a tree, it doesn't go into landfill, it breaks down, it biodegrades, and it actually composts into the soil and, and provides nutrients for new life. And so I really wanted to look at actually leather and handbags and work out, could I make the bag that would never end up in landfill? To Bill's point about actually designing end life into the product from the get-go and we actually worked on this other project called return to nature which is leather which actually biodegrades and composts and it in turn provides a 20 percent stronger plant growth from the composted soils so it's been a, and to some extent an academic project but a really important project i think to discuss the idea of, of, of this end of life from the beginning because just dealing with with landfill is, is great because we obviously we need to but actually let's try and stop it happening in the first place you both strike me as being so thoughtful and clearly you've you've both spoken already about your passion. Does that marry up with the consumer view? I wonder that as a culture of consumption, do we sufficiently value people that espouse the values that you're talking about? Do we value craft enough? Do you think, Bill, you've had this, this storied career already. Do you think there's a difference in the perception from the public in terms of what you do, your fascination and passion for, for craft? Do we as a society value craft and craftspeople highly enough? I think increasingly craft and the process of making and the material choice used in making anything are becoming more and more relevant, particularly with young people. And I think that's great. That's the opportunity that we got both, you know, personally and as an industry to really generate some serious action with young people suddenly taking on board the opportunity to make things properly and really look at the material choice that they use in the making process. And I think that will filter down. I mean, that will spread out into the broader economy. It's bound to in the end. I mean, you only have to look at the excitement that's been sort of generated through somewhere like NEP, which started the rewilding project in Sussex 15, 17 years ago. And now that's you know, that activity of rewilding land is, is growing all over the UK and in Europe. That's starting up the conversation about regenerative agriculture, and people are really beginning to look at materials and what that brings and how you make it. It's a nice loop, I think. It's all about young people. It's all about what the youth think. And I think if they are increasingly aware, and I think if agents, media like yourself, are interested in it and give a proper voice that's balanced, then there is a chance for change. That was Bill Amberg, and before that, Anya Hindmarch. You can learn more about Anya's work at anyahindmarch.com and discover more about the work of Bill and his team at billamberg.com. To find out more about the campaign the guys have been talking about today and to learn what you can do to get involved and make a difference, head to leathertruthfully.com. Next up on The Entrepreneurs, we're meeting the founder of a Dutch brand making what might just be the very best shirts in the world in India. 
Akshat Jain leads 100 Hands, an extraordinary family business, along with his brother and partner, Varvara, out of Amsterdam, that's challenging industry standards and assumptions and putting exceptional levels of craft and a pretty astonishing commitment in terms of time, both in training its people and in creating its products, at the heart of all it does. I began by asking Akshat about the notion of creating the finest shirt in the world. Was that, I asked him, the objective from the very start? When we started, it was quite clear for us, especially crafting in India, that it has to be something above the standard level. Mm. And when I say standard level, I'm talking about the best of the standard level, not the general shirt anyhow. So that was the way we started defining what is going to be a shirt here. And we were very clear it has to be not just best in Italy or best in Amsterdam or best in a region. It has to be best in itself and the region should not be the point of discussion here. And that's how we started. And yeah, the journey is going good and it's developing in the right direction. You're very modest, Akshar. And tell me, that moment at the beginning, this obviously taps in. It's a family business. You operate with your brother and your, and your partner. It taps into a, a heritage, an industry in, in textiles that you had this long association with. But you weren't working in that business at the time. But was it something that always was kind of there? Did you always have this feeling that one day that would be the thing that you would kind of almost return to in a, in a sense? It's strange that you ask that. I think since childhood, I felt I was going to be in textiles. But at the same time, my father was so busy and so involved in his business that he did not want the children to be in the same business. So I went into doing software engineering, then to MBA and then to the finance M&A side. But then at one stage I felt, okay, I need to do something of my own and I could not think anything else except the textile side of it. So it's also a safety factor because I understood and I used to go to the spinning mill which my father owned. It's a 166 years old business. And yeah, we grew up looking at cottons and yarns and threads. So it was a little bit, you can say, I was nurtured into it. Mm. And it's kind of in your in your DNA almost. And I wonder then, how how much did that experience, that knowledge, those connections inform this quest to make something that's truly exceptional? Because I guess the secret, if there is one to 100 Hands, is the level of craft, the time, very importantly, that you take. Tell us a bit about how you managed to work out what it would take to start that journey. You had these connections in in the textiles business, but how did you come to look afresh at what the production process was going to take, from how long it would take to the skills, the crafts involved in it? How did you go about sort of building that picture in your mind? Honestly, the link to the textile business has almost nothing to do with what we are doing <laughs> because that business is very huge volume-focused business and this is purely an artisanal style of business. Mm. So very different. We had a small workshop of six people which was mainly making clothing for family, our own family and friends, so just few people. But they were really, really, really good tailors. So then I thought, okay, since we have somebody, why don't we use that framework to extend it. And the quality was good, but not as what we are producing, not as good as today. So we had to really do homework from ground up 
Hmm. And it took us almost two years first to define, okay, this is the quality which we are going to showcase. It sounds strange, but half of the quality has come through people themselves. Because when we started proposing, it was already very good. But then people started saying, okay, I love it. I find it exciting. This is never seen before. And it kind of challenged us to find even more nitty-gritty details. How do we refine every single step of it? So even today, now we are almost eight years old company. This is a constant question for the team every day. What are we improving in quality? It's a very difficult question now for the team because they are producing in a very fine manner already, but we always have a list of maybe 30 items already on the board to work upon still. Which is amazing. I'm sure people who are familiar with the products will marvel at the fact that you can have that level of ambition when you are already at such a high standard. Tell me a bit about sort of brand made in India, because I'm sure that lots of people will make assumptions about what that means when it comes to any kind of manufacturing. And yet in this instance, it's so interesting. There's so much investment in people in terms of that time and extraordinary that something that another brand might achieve in just a few weeks you guys it takes a whole year to sort of instill that value system almost in the context of 100 hands what does made in india as a brand label what does that mean to you Akshat? when we started the first two years we never put on the web shop or the website that is made in india because we are based in amsterdam it's a dutch brand We were not that open about it for the same reasons people feel, okay, it's made in India, should be lower priced, the quality cannot be as competitive to the rest of the world. But then one gentleman, Adrian Dernelli, he is one of the bloggers, but also quite a key person in Paris, he said to us, why don't you share what your biggest strength to the market? And that was the turning point. So when we started being very transparent about it, that authentication came to the people. They started feeling, okay, this type of quality of work, it's just not possible to do here, first from a cost perspective and second from the skills perspective. And that's how the whole change in the business happened. And that's when we started to actually grow. So India became our biggest strength Mm -hmm. eventually. So we were thinking it was a weakness at the start. But it's actually the biggest strength. Well, and I find it really interesting. There's much about your approach as a family business that is sort of disruptive, to use the buzzword, Mm -hmm. a different approach to the time it takes, the values that we instill on aspects of the craft. But perhaps that's the most significant one. It's not about the country of origin. It's about the level of craftsmanship that you nurture and that you insist upon having. That's quite a fundamental change in the garment business, whether you're talking about high street fast fashion or to even quite high level high fashion, that is something that is quite disruptive. Do you hear that when you talk, particularly to people who are maybe working in your price point, products of this quality, are they uneasy about how disruptive that is or do they love the story? They love the story, but they hate. (laughs) They love and hate it. (laughs) Because while at the same time they know we are doing something good, we are also in a way trying to take over the share of the market, which is quite constant. The market size is not changing Mm. practically. So it's basically who's taking the market share in a way. And we have been growing consistently over year and year. So the disruptive approach is also coming from the fact that we I mean, we are from textile background. We are not from garment background. And since I'm technically not knowing anything about garmenting, 
I don't really follow the rules that this is how mm. it has to be done. And if especially my team or anybody in the industry cannot explain me why this was decided like this, for me, the first question is, okay, then I can go in my own way. And that's what people actually like in the end because everybody wants to follow a certain path, certain routine, which is set by a certain industry standard. And nobody wants to break it because nobody wants to be looking like, okay, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. And we are okay with that because we are very open that we are not from this industry actually, but we want to make which clearly a benchmark within this industry. Let's talk about the longer term vision then for this business. It is a family business, as we mentioned, and it's instructive to me that you run it and sort of integrate new members, almost like new members of a family. And I think one can really sense those values in the finished products and in the way that you talk about it. And it was funny, before we started this recording, we were chatting with uh, Varvara and with your lovely son, who was having all sorts of fun in the, in the waiting room here at Midori House. But what's the, the vision? Is it to keep those family values integral, however big you get, however global the brand becomes, to keep that sense of family and a certain kind of intimacy? Is that very important? I think it is. At least for now, while we have very high aspirations to grow the company while keeping the standards what we maintain, at the same time, we want to achieve, if possible, to keep it a family business. We have had a lot of investment offers already, but somehow we are so passionate and so connected that it's hard for us to even give away anything out of the company. Not at this stage, for sure not. So I think it will remain a family business and grow nicely as a family business. And so maybe that young man outside, he might be working for you in a few years. He needs a little bit. He needs a bit more time, right? I always make a joke. When he's six years, he's joining the company. <laughs> he certainly he will bring a lot of energy to proceedings, that's for sure. I hope so. Um, actually, just finally then, as you do grow, if you resist those overtures from interested other parties and you stay as a family concern, at least for the foreseeable, how do you think you'll be looking at the business? Will it still be, I don't know, will it be a Amsterdam-based company with its Indian manufacturing roots? Do you almost have to force yourself to think about it as a, as a global company that's not necessarily anchored in one region? Does it really matter about those perceptions? It's a good question. For me, actually, India is a part of a story, but it's not the necessary part of the story. So... If all things go very well and planned, one day we would like to do micro factories around the world. So that's how I feel that I would place small mini factories everywhere in the world, which at least the good centers across the world, with two things. Of course, the ready-to-wear and the design collection can come from any production place of our factories. But we feel that the stores are going into a mode where you can go into the store and say, okay, I want this shirt. And it might not be physically available, but you can receive it in two days in your house. That means we have to be placed just next to the customer already. You order today and two days later, we can practically send it to you. Of course, there is caveats. How can we produce such quality within the two days time? So all those things still have to be questioned out. But that is the idea of the company to grow into one day. So it's a kind of embodiment of that idea, I guess, of thinking global but acting local almost as, so. a, as an answer to some of the challenges of, of globalization. Because we are not particular about regions. We don't say this is the person or this is the hand which has gone making into the product. And especially the raw materials are coming from all over the world. Anyhow, cotton from one part of the world, the finishing another 
it's just not one standardized regional product anyhow. So I'm not concerned about that part. The product has to be correct. Well, and let's finish by putting the product at the center. When you, I don't know, show somebody a shirt for the first time or if they're handling one of your garments, they've not seen them before, do you encourage them to look at something in particular or feel an aspect of the fabric? How do you communicate when they've literally got the product in their hands what it is about it that makes it unique, that ensures that it lives up to these values that you've told us about? For a naked eye, sometimes you might not see anything because it's not their business, right? So they are not educated in that. But when we started, we entered stores just randomly. So we didn't call them. We just walked in to say, hello, we want to show you something. And nine out of ten, they would say, get out because (laughs) they have enough shirts already. But those who allowed us a meeting, every single store we cracked because the main thing we were showing was not the fabric because I think everybody can buy a good fabric here. We were showing them how the finishing and the making was done while no other company, and we could show them those details which they had never seen. And I remember one guy saying, it's the first time I feel that you're talking about somebody alive, not about a product. That's the message we want to give to the people that we made it like a life, not just as a product. Akshat Jain, founder of 100 Hands. You can learn more about Akshat and his colleagues and their journey and mission with the brand. Just head to 100hands.nl. That's all for this week. The programme was masterfully mixed and edited, as always, by Jack Dewars. My thanks to him. And thanks once again to Anya Heimarch and Bill Amberg and all the 100 Hands team too. You can listen again and find out more about this show at monocle.com or follow us and delve into the archive at your leisure via your preferred podcast platform. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye and thanks for listening to The Entrepreneurs. <laughs>